Hello and welcome to Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Chalfus. Over the past few years, we've become used to the idea of global food systems. Basic foods like soybeans or frozen chickens or apples crisscross the ocean, moving from where they're cheapest to grow to where there are markets that'll pay. And that seems like a quite modern idea. But it's not. There are these initially luxury products which are, which are produced overseas, um, 17th and 18th century, but really the super outsourcing of food is a, is, is a 19th century phenomenon. That's Chris Otter, professor of history at Ohio State University. His book, Diet for a Large Planet, details the way the British Empire, as he says, outsourced the production of food. Chris Otter tells the story mainly through three commodities, meat, wheat, and sugar. So let's start with the roast beef of England, the vast majority of which, certainly by Victorian times, was not produced in England. So how did that happen? This develops not by the British importing um, beef that just happens to be grown um, elsewhere in the world, but specifically by exporting their animals overseas to produce herds which replicated the type of meat that the British were used to, you know, meat with a with a certain type of uh, fat con- content. So we're talking here about shorthorns and Herefords and Aberdeen Anguses. And the story is is the same for for lamb, and the same for for bacon, uh, with the exporting of of um, of British animals overseas, sometimes crossbred to produce animals which are capable of living in in, for example, New Zealand and so forth. But the the genetic lines are originally British, and if you notice in America, you still we still eat a lot of Angus and Hereford beef today. So these animals were developed by scientific breeding. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't Mendelian genetics yet, but it was. They were developed to 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 satisfy a a, a homegrown market. Right, they were. Um, I, I don't. I wouldn't necessarily use the word scientific. I'd I'd, I'd say it's more sort of empirical. Um, but the aim is to produce an animal which. Um, produces uh, as much meat as possible in a short space of time. What was the impetus? Was it that the British population was already growing and outstripping home demand? Or was it that somebody saw an opportunity of, say, exporting Herefords to the American West or Argentina or wherever it might be? Well, it's a combination of of factors. Obviously, population growth was happening, but this population growth could perfectly easily have been fed domestically. Um, and indeed, it, it, it's meat, it's meat consumption could probably have been satisfied domestically. Um, it's more a question of, of economics and technology. In the early 19th century, um, there were competing economic theories about how uh, how Britain should be fed, how wealth should be produced, how progress should happen. But um, a dominant strain of political economy 
stated that if you could outsource something cheaply, this made sense. What I call the large planet thinking here was that, that if there were no economic, no political reasons standing in the way of using the entire world uh, to feed oneself, with the idea being that um, it made sense for Britain to use her land and resources for what she was best suited for, which was industry um, and urban progress and and therefore you know outsourcing food production as uh, was perfectly feasible and therefore you'll find people saying things like you know if we don't grow any wheat anymore at all well that's okay someone else will grow it for us there'll be a world market for this and because of um the rise of of cheap transports because of the cheap labor on the frontiers the, the price differentials uh, narrowed sufficiently to make this uh, extremely profitable and to be clear, the reason it was so cheap was because the British didn't care much about anyone who was already on the land, and they didn't care much about the land itself. There was so much of it out there. And I do think the history of New Zealand is is interesting here. It, it's uh, literally um, antipodean. It's, it's, it's about as far away from Britain as you can get. And the idea of using New Zealand as pasture land for Britain, uh, particularly for the production of lamb, but also for the production of butter and cheese. That, that's fairly startling. That, and that's really where this kind of large planet thinking becomes most apparent. Uh, the idea that, that distance is really no object. Um, what we call food miles today are, are of no consequence. What, what we, we think of as, as the amount of energy being expended uh, to import that food again, is, is, is inconsequential. And the fact that you could do that and, and make it economically viable is also pretty surprising too. To be sure, it took a lot of technology to get the food back to the home market in good condition. Refrigeration, for one thing. Wheat, of course, is much easier than meat to ship. You don't need to keep it cold, just dry. But there's another twist to the wheat story. You couldn't just send English wheat to be grown elsewhere, like you could English sheep or cattle. In the case of um, wheat, it's slightly different in, in that the kinds of um, wheat demanded by a public becoming increasingly used to, to um, white bread and later mac produced white bread did not grow particularly easily in in the British Isles. The kind of wheat that was grown in the in the British Isles was quite good for making things like scones and, and cakes and flatbreads with, but its uh, its gluten content was was quite low. Whereas the sorts of wheats that initially grew in the black soils of uh, the Ukraine and were export were taken over to the United States and planted across the United States wheat belt and up into Canada and then through various uh, selection techniques, were were sort of perfected. These were far better for producing. So it's not here. It's not a case of exporting the types of animal you want and then and then reaping the benefits. It's a case of actually using conditions around the globe to produce something that would be harder to produce um, at home. But again, the milling, the turning the wheat into flour, was done at home, as it were. So that kind of value-adding process was done at home? 
It, it was, um, but not always. There were obviously enormous flour mills developed in the United States exporting flour. It's easier to export grain in its in its raw state than it is to export flour. And um, what you see in Britain is a collapse of a lot of local milling. So those sort of rather melancholy ruined windmills you see all over Britain, that sort of dates to the, the late 19th century and a concentration in in very large port mills in places like places like Hull or London or, or Liverpool. It's worth noting that by 1909, more than four-fifths of the bread eaten in Britain was made from imported wheat. So then what about sugar? It's hard to think of sugar as a food, although, of course, poor British factory workers were eating a lot of that bread as their main source of energy with plenty of jam, that and sweet tea. And both of those reflect a deliberate policy to make sugar a cheap necessity rather than an expensive luxury. It was slavery that made sugar cheap. But even after the end of legal slavery, sugar remained cheap thanks to plantations in Cuba, Java and other colonies that were pretty much like slavery for the workers. So then what happened? But I pushed the story forward into the, into the 19th and 20th centuries and, and look at the, the strange history of sugar beet, um, which is, from the point of view of the large planet philosophy, a rather, a rather strange idea, the idea that you would start growing something on your own soil that you can get very cheaply from overseas was for some political economists a, a very a, a very anomalous move but it was a move that was developed in in particularly in central europe in the 18th century the chemical identity of um sugar from beet and sugar from cane was was kind of established and napoleon actually plays a fairly important role in this during the Napoleonic Wars, the French obviously lost a lot of their economic connections. And so Napoleon was very keen to use French scientific um, enterprise to develop a beet industry. And while this waned a little bit after, after Napoleon, it was taken up later in France and, and in Germany um, and in German states as a way of, um, with a, with, which had a rather different approach to um, Food and, and the economies of food, their idea here was that, that they will create an in, in indigenous industry, which will generate um, cheap food of their own. Um, they put a lot of scientific um, effort into this and into refining these beets, which, as I point out in the book, are arguably the most radically changed uh, of all the plants and animals we're talking about here. The rise of, of, of the sort of Silesian sugar beet is probably the most dramatic. In Britain, where a very different um, economic ideology is dominant, um, attempts to homegrow sugar beet are largely unsuccessful in the 19th century, but post-World War I, in a, an atmosphere of slightly changing um, economic thinking, the sugar beet industry um, begins. And so in the 20s and 30s, uh, Britain develops its own sugar beet industry. Um, and these plants are dotted across the east of England. I grew up not far from one. Uh, and it's, it, it, by, by World War II, it was producing, I think, between a quarter and a third of Britain's sugar beet. 
after the First World War, um, how, how much of the change in where the sugar is coming from is down to anti-German sentiment, or is it purely economic? It's not not necessarily anti-German sentiment, no. Um, I don't think it was the equivalent of selling Volkswagen Beetles after World War II when people went around smashing them. Um, I, uh, the, the German beet fields are in a ruinous state after World War One, anyway, so the industry... Um, that said, um, under the... Um, under the Nazis, uh, sugar beet becomes a, again a, a big deal in Germany. Um, it's seen as a as an ideal uh, sort of autarkic industry, and you can use its waste products to feed pigs. So this is this is all part of a sort of autarkic sugar beet potato pig economy. I'm intrigued also by the by the way that sugar becomes fuel and the development of sweet tea of tea breaks of jams and cookies and all the rest of it. I mean, most of the sugar we eat these days is not pure white sugar that we put into your coffee. It's hidden food. Yeah. Was that to use up sugar or was it deliberately to, to fuel the workers? I wouldn't necessarily go too, too far into conspiratorial theories here. Sugar, as I point out in the book, really permeates the British diet in the 19th century in a number of guises through um, food processing. So sugar starts to find its way into bread. It finds its way into beer. And it's not simply because there's a desire to sweeten foods to appeal to the palate. Sugar also plays various other kind of structural roles in, in food processing. But the rise in sugar consumption is not simply having a sugar bowl and you piling sugar into your tea. Um, it's all these other hidden uh, ways in which sugar enters the diet are developing in the 19th century, and they only develop further with the increasing amount of processed food in the 20th century. Because it's interesting that sugar, um, well, probably like beef and, and wheat as well, but, but they go through phases of being the greatest thing and really good for you and super source of energy and eat lots of it to being anathema and, and really bad for you and don't eat it anymore. Um, and that does seem to mirror slightly what society wants from its food supply. Right. I mean, I think that, again, of all foods that, that I discuss in the book, sugar is the most controversial. And these controversies are old, stretching back into the early modern period when sugar was was associated with with uh, all kinds of dissipate um, uh, habits and, and 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 health problems. As I note in the book, in the late nineteenth century, with a a society that's you know, I wouldn't say energy obsessed, but certainly a, a society which is heavily industrializing, very keen on on productivity. Sugar is seen as as the cheapest way of producing energy that borders on being a drug but isn't. These debates have not abated, but we are currently in a in a, a phase of um, where we're almost achieving a consensus that that sugar is is in many ways a very bad thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the Victorians, people like Florence Nightingale and so on, they didn't they didn't agree with this. The the argument here was was largely that, that sugar was a was a very beneficial thing. 
um, even beneficial, beneficial to health um, and certainly beneficial to the economy. As Sidney Mintz argues, with, without sugar, the British economy probably couldn't have functioned. Really? Um, Labour force would have, you know, the, 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 this is like the calorie gap that laborers need to get through the day. And, and as I note in the book, the rise of, the rise of candy, of sweetened chocolate bars, of sweetened tea, of tea breaks, vending machines, giving you these bursts. These are, these are again, these are part of the technologies through which this kind of food system operates. Again, I'm very struck that what I think of as the bad effects of the food system are not nearly as recent as I thought they were. Time now to look at the other side of the large planet idea. It's clearly in opposition to Francis Moore Lappe's famous book, Diet for a Small Planet, which he urges us to think about the impact of what we choose to eat on the wider environment. The large planet philosophy seems to have given no thought to what this outsourcing of food would do in the world beyond Great Britain. Maybe it's a bit much of me to expect people in the heyday of Victorian expansionism to be thinking about the downsides of their glorious enterprise. I actually slightly disagree with, with, with that in the sense that I, I think that there were some people who argued that there were, um, there were dangerous consequences. For example, um, many of the early vegetarians, um, weren't just opposed to eating meat on an ethical basis, but appreciated the fact that it simply takes considerably more land and resources, um, to feed a cow than to feed a, a human, the grain. And, uh, people like Malthus appreciated this. Adam Smith appreciated this. Shelley certainly appreciated this in his early writings on, on vegetarianism. So I think that the, the, the idea that there were finite resources and that shifting to a, a meatier diet using larger amounts of land, um, sure, the idea of, you know, an, a, a full on anthropocene and the kinds of issues that face us today were, could not have been predicted. But the dangers were understood. And I think that um, historians are coming to realize that when we talk about something like the Anthropocene, that, that humans didn't walk into this blindfolds. Knowledge was there, which, which enabled some people to, uh, to critique what was going on. And so critique, um, whether it be the vegetarians of the 19th century or the organic farmers, of the early 20th century who I talk about, critique has always been there. But then part of the problem today seems to be that this British diet, meat, uh, wheat and sugar, is almost aspirational in many parts of the world. And so we have a lot more people trying to eat this way than uh, even proportionally, we have a lot more people trying to eat this way now than were doing so in the middle of the 19th century. And that seems to be the problem. So how did the British diet become aspirational? I don't mean the British diet, everybody poo poo, you know, nobody thinks the British can cook. Forget about that. But I mean, this idea of meat and, and, and sugar and, and refined wheat and things like that. I mean, each of these particular raw materials has its own you know, as its own history, the, the history of, of the, you know, the, the valoration and valorization and veneration of, of red meat in the Western world 
Um, it's far longer than the 19th century. The history of, of wheat being seen as a superior grain, again, in the Western world, uh, dates back centuries. Um, it, you know, the, the, the Romans venerated wheat too. Uh, and sugar is a, is a slightly different genealogy. So there's a longer history to these things being aspirational milk, we would also add to this. But lo- like um, driving a car, and having air conditioning. Um, these are all seen as parts of a, of a Western lifestyle to which developing nations, as they, as they develop, um, often aspire that the data are there to back this up. Any country undergoing economic development sees a, sh- usually sees a shift towards a meatier diet, to a diet richer in animal proteins. So it's part of a package of a, of a Western aspirational lifestyle. And, and as with our addiction to fossil fuels and our addiction to um, climate control and, and various other things, this is this is a, about other people wanting what the what what the West has had and feeling and, and, and feeling understandably as though they have a right to this too. But the problem is that the carrying capacity of, of the Earth is too small. Hence, the need for extra planets and all of this sort of extra planetary thinking that I mentioned in the introduction of the book is largely or certainly significantly a consequence of the way the people in the West and and particularly the British ate um, in the 19th century. Yeah, because they had a relatively tiny island and they colonized or bought or took large areas of the rest of the world. That the British Isles itself is also a colonized space um, where outside of the the sort of the wealthier core of southern England, the, the more remote and Celtic parts of the British Isles are also seen as, as, as places where which are which are really where animals should live rather than people. Ireland being the most obvious example of this. Uh, but the Highland clearances are also part of this history. So there's a history of of sort of domestic clearing, followed by a history of colonial clearing in many of its areas. There, there, there is, there is very often violence, um, ejection of, of, uh, first peoples. The whole colonial project and the settlement project is also about settling animals as well as people. Yeah. Settling animals on places where people have lived. Yeah. And this is something you see in Argentina. Uh, as well as in as well as in North America and, and, and Australia, Chris Otter, author of Diet for a Large Planet, subtitled Industrial Britain, Food Systems, and World Ecology. And although he mentioned Australia, when we originally spoke, the current fuss over the UK's free trade deal with Australia was not yet in the news. Details aren't finally settled although the press seems to think that the UK wants to announce a deal before June the 11th. That's the start of the big G7 meeting it's hosting, and to which Australia has been invited. Australia is insisting that any deal must allow it to export as much food, especially beef and lamb, as it wants, with no tariffs. And that has farmers in the UK very upset, with talk of UK agriculture being chucked under the bus. 
The basis of the complaint, as far as I can tell, is that Australian farmers aren't doing as much to protect the environment. And that's why their beef is cheaper, even after travelling all the way to the UK. Which sounds exactly like the 19th century, when Australian beef was very much on the British menu. So I got in touch with Chris Otter again, and I asked him as a historian what he thought of the UK's farmers' protests. Pretty ironic, given that this was precisely the system that developed in the 19th century, where, whereby access to the British food market was, was actively encouraged by free trading ideology. If we look back at the 19th century and try and look at parallels in terms of um, protests, what happened in, in 1846 with the repeal of the Corn Laws was that this actually didn't make initially very much difference um, to the fate of uh, British farmers. Uh, in fact, prices remained remained steady for, for, for quite a few years, and this was sometimes known as the golden age of British farming. But by the 1870s, when the American wheat frontier was really opening up and cheap American wheat was beginning to uh, reach the British market, we then see the, the general agricultural depression, which la lasts for about 20 years. And during this period, um, British farmers, uh, many British farmers suffer heavily. Moving to the present, what we see is um, a, a transformation in the British agricultural system again post-1950, when the rise of, of new uh, genetic varieties of, of wheat and new ideologies which are less centered around free trade and the European Union means that Britain becomes much more self-sufficient agriculturally after World War II. I think by 1986, Britain is, is largely self-sufficient in foodstuffs. Um, one fact here is Britain produces only 23% of its own wheat in, in the late 1930s. Um, it produces nearly 80% by 1980. What we may be seeing at the moment with the, with Britain coming out of Brexit is the potential emergence of a new policy towards food, which might ironically be more similar to that developed in the 1840s and 1850s, a, a policy where agriculture is not protected and there is an encouragement of more sort of global trade. Um, but that, that's, you know, that's speculation and historians are, uh, are always, um, quite wise to avoid speculation. So, but, but there may be, uh, sort of one of the long-term effects of Brexit, uh, might be, as I say, a sort of ironic, uh, re-emergence of, uh, of a food regime that is closer to that of 1850 than, uh, than that of 2000. It's almost as if nothing has changed in the interim. The UK will still be basing its diet on a much larger planet than we actually inhabit. Perhaps I'll be able to put details of any trade deal in next week's newsletter, which you can get by putting your email in the form at eatthispodcast.com. I'll also put details of Chris Otter's book there and some other background reading. Don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter at EatPodcast and on Instagram too at EatThisPodcast. And those are both ways to get in touch. You can also leave a comment on the website at EatThisPodcast.com or drop an email 
to jeremy at eatthispodcast.com. Next time, in what's turning out to be a little mini-series on global food systems and the legacy of empire, how India's independence affected its food system. Till then, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.